If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 21. We're continuing in our series as, uh, as the Lord would have it. We are actually in a resurrection passage in Genesis 21. Not at first glance, but we'll see by the time we get to the end of the service today, this is a resurrection passage very clearly. Just uh, Let me also share something just briefly as we get started. While we are singing, uh, Because He Lives, there's the, uh, the verse in there, uh, and then one day I'll cross the river, I'll fight life's, fan, uh, life's final war or battle with death. Um, last week I recommended you getting a, uh, a copy of the letters of John Newton, so that's a, that's a must read, right? In order to continue to attend here, you must get a copy. <laughs> The other book that I would say you need to, you need to have on hand is Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene towards the end of the book where uh, Christian and his traveling companion are making their way to the celestial city, and they have to, they have to cross the river of death in order to, to get to the other side. And they, they both enter in, uh, hopeful, Christian's companion, you know, uh, makes it across, seems to do just fine. Christian, when he enters into the river, he begins to panic, and he begins to, uh, he, he gets fearful. And you're, you're at the end of the book, there's been so much that Christian has gone through already that you think, this is, this is not what I'm expecting to happen. And he's crying out, just sort of, you know, in panic, uh, about how he's going to sink into the water. He's going to be swallowed up in death. And Hopeful calls out to him and encourages him and says, says no, find the bottom, find the bottom. And, and the point is, I, he says, I've got the bottom, it's solid, it's secure. The, the point that Hopeful is making is, even when you're passing through death, even for the Christian who does not face death or encounter death with the kind of resolve that we would all hope to have, our security is not in our performance. Our firm foundation is the rock-solid promises of God that remain true even when death comes. So it's easy for us to take a triumphal tone on Easter Sunday. It's oftentimes much harder when you're sitting in the hospital room at someone's bed or when you've received a diagnosis that you would rather not have. And I'm here to tell you, on the authority of God's word, that for every single person who has been united to Christ, your security, even in death, does not depend on how confident you are. Your security is found in the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. That's why Easter is good. Because he's already defeated death. And he brings me through to the other side in spite of myself. Genesis chapter 21. I thought that maybe we would read verses 1 through 14. But I think I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8. Because I don't think we'd be able to get to verses 9 and following anyway. So, Genesis 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, 
And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised, or literally did for Sarah as he had spoken. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, open our eyes now, we ask. Help us to see your glory in the pages of Scripture. Help us to see your glory in Scripture because it points us to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to see and know that these verses, these passages are ours and they are true for us. Father, give us understanding, give us comfort where needed, give us conviction where warranted. May everything be done for your glory and our joy, and it's in the name of Christ our Savior that we pray. Amen. So we are going to move from the sermon formal, what we're doing right now, to communion, to the Lord's Supper. We're going to move from a barren womb to an empty tomb. This is is the movement we're taking. This is, as we'll see here towards the end, Genesis 21 is a resurrection passage. It's important for us to recognize that what we're doing now, for those of you who have been with us since the beginning of this Genesis series, or at the very least, been with us, say, around chapter 11 or chapter 12, that where we drop in in Genesis right now, the birth of Isaac, is a promise, is an event 25 years in the making. Go all the way back to the end of Genesis chapter 11 to find the introduction of Abraham into the Genesis narrative. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 11, which I would encourage you to do right now if you have your Bibles with you, in Genesis 11, verse 30, we're told at the very beginning, at the very outset, this simple, significant statement, Genesis 11:30, Sarai was barren, she had no child. We've moved from the end of chapter 11 to chapter 21, from a barren woman to a woman who has just given birth to her first and only child. What I want to do in the time that we have in Genesis 21, I want to do two things. One, I want to look at what God said, how that's emphasized in this passage, God's word, God's word of promise, what God said, and then what God made, 
what God said and what God made. When we're looking at Genesis 21, notice that in the first two verses, you have a repetition to stress the importance that what happens here is nothing less than what God said would happen. So 21 verse 1 tells us that the Lord did for Sarah as he had said. He took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. And then verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Three times in the first two verses where our attention is drawn to the fact that what we're reading about is what God said would happen. But of course we know in the Abraham and Sarah narratives that this is not the only time or the only reference to things that God has said. The whole Abraham and Sarah narrative begins with God speaking and calling Abraham and Sarah to himself. That's how the story begins. God's word calling a man to himself, creating a people for himself. But 1130 starts the story by telling us that Sarah, this woman that we just read about, who gave birth to a child, was barren. She did not have the ability to conceive and give birth. And yet, in chapter 12, verse 2, when God calls Abraham and tells him to leave his homeland, to leave his family, to go to a land that the Lord would show him, God says, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. A little bit later on in the chapter, verse 7, Genesis 12, verse 7, Abraham has entered into the land, and God says to Abram, reiterating or repeating what he said in verse 2, to your descendants I will give this land. 1130, Sarah was barren. She had no child. 12.2 and 12.7, I will make you a great nation. To your descendants I will give this land. What has changed between 1130 and 12.2? The only thing that's changed is that God has spoken and God has given a promise. Has anything changed with Sarah? In 12.2, Sarah is just as barren as she was in 11.30. In 12.7, when God says to Abraham, to your descendants I will give this land, Abraham has no children. Chapter 13, verse 16, after Lot has parted ways with Abraham, God tells Abraham, lift up your eyes and look all around you. And he says, in part to Abraham, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Sarah has not picked up a pregnancy test from the local drugstore. There are no descendants on the horizon. There is no descendant, singular, on the horizon. And God says in 13, I will make your descendants, plural, like the dust, like the dirt, grains of sand on the earth. What has changed from 1130 to chapter 13? Nothing. But God has spoken. Chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, 
God says specifically to Abraham that someone, that one from your own body, will be your heir. You will not make your chief servant, your chief administrator, heir to your fortune. One from your own body will be your heir. And then he takes Abraham outside and he says, Abram, look at the stars. If you can count them, so will your descendants be. What has changed from 1130 to 15, 4 and 5? Nothing. But the Lord has spoken. Chapter 17, verse 6. God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And he gets even more specific to say, after the failure with the episode of Hagar and Ishmael, he gets very specific and says to Abraham in 1716, I will give you a son by Sarah. Abraham is 99 years old in chapter 17. Sarah is 10 years younger, 89. What has changed from 1130 to chapter 17? Nothing. There is no baby bump. Osteoporosis is setting in. Sarah is no closer to conceiving and giving birth in chapter 17 than she was in chapter 11. In fact, she is moving further and further away from that event. Chapter 18, God comes and He says, at this time next year I will return to you and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah laughs. By the way, just a reminder, Abraham laughs in chapter 17 when he hears that Sarah will conceive. Abraham laughs first, Sarah laughs second, but they both laugh. What has changed at chapter 18? Nothing. But God has spoken. And so we get to chapter 21, and we're told that Sarah gives birth to a son as the Lord had said, as the Lord has spoken, as the Lord had promised. Listen, people, the truth of the matter is that there are many, if not all, of the promises of God that have been spoken to us and written down so that we can review them over and over again. The promises of God, just like the promise given to Abraham and Sarah, are such that they fly in the face of reality. God says that He is going to give you victory over sin and temptation. Does it look like you're walking in uninterrupted victory from day to day? Or do the promises of God so often seem to fly in the face of your personal experience? Because we sin, because we fail, because we fall short. But God has said. Over and over and over again, God speaks 
words of assurance, words of comfort, words of promise to us, to his people, that have no basis in reality. But how does reality even come to be Genesis 1? God speaks it into existence. This is one of the things that we celebrate and that we see exemplified even in the life of Christ. Consider, we're celebrating Easter Sunday. If you celebrated Good Friday, you probably had to do that on your own. Let me take you back to Good Friday. Jesus goes to the cross. He suffers. He's shamed. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. Has it all been a waste? Has God turned from him and abandoned him? It felt like it. It looked like it. Doesn't Jesus himself say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't it seem like the realities of life have overwhelmed the promises of God? But don't miss, don't miss the language that Jesus uses even when he is giving voice to his sense of, the feeling of abandonment and solitude. Notice, he does not say, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even at the lowest point, of Christ's life, when the gloom and despair of sin and the burden of judgment is resting on his shoulders, when he must carry this alone, he is still by faith saying, you are my God. The Lord on the cross speaks words that do not seem to align with reality. And he ends his life on the cross saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Where is the fatherly affection on the cross? Where is the intimate relationship shared by father and son while Jesus is suffering and crying out in agony? Does reality bear witness to the father-son relationship? Or even at his last breath, does Jesus speak a word of assurance, a word of guarantee and promise that no one can receive except they receive it on faith? You still are my Father, and I commit myself to you. Listen, people. The Christian life is a life that takes you through all kinds of hills and valleys, all kinds of difficulties and tests and trials. And the reason that we have passages like Genesis 21 is to remind us that what the Lord has said He will do, He will do. That the circumstances of life 
do not determine the certainty of God's promises to you. Let every man be a liar. God remains true. The other thing to notice in the stressing of the fact that this was done according to what the Lord had said, that the Lord speaks and He promises things that have no connection to real life. Everything in life seems to go against the promises of God, and yet God brings it to fulfillment. He brings it to fruition. Notice also that one of the things that we're told in verse 2 is that at the appointed time of which God had spoken, he calls Sarah to give birth. At the appointed time. Now, most closely, this is a reference back to chapter 18 and chapter 17, where God says, at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. But that sort of draws the question out. Well, if God at any time could say, well, how about we do the conception and the birth this year? Why didn't he do it 20 years prior? 20 years prior, Sarah was still barren, right? It still would have been a miracle. Why make Abraham and Sarah wait 25 years in order for this one promise to be fulfilled? By the way, you might as well ask yourself the same question about God's promises to you. Why do I wait? If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, if nothing can stand in the way of God, why doesn't He just give me what He said He's going to give me? Why doesn't He just do it now? What's with the waiting? Go back to chapter 18. I think the 25 years of waiting... is intentional. It's not random. Look in Genesis 18, verse 11, at what we're told. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. In other words, even if Sarah were not barren, she was no longer in the window of being able to conceive and give birth to children. The odds or the deadness of her womb is doubly dead. She is barren and she is old. And Sarah, when she hears that she will conceive, laughs in disbelief at the promise that something like that could happen. And then we get this statement in verse 14. After asking, why did Sarah laugh? 18.14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Here's why I think Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years. Because God wanted to make absolutely certain that they knew with absolute certainty that this promised fulfillment was all Him and none of them. Amen. 
if God gives Abraham and Sarah a child, when it is still humanly possible, they think, oh, well, we went through so many years of infertility, but now it finally took. Can't do that at this point in time. A doubly dead womb. The question is not, will anything be too difficult for you, Abraham and Sarah? The question is, will anything be too difficult for the Lord? He makes them wait for the fulfillment of His promise to bring them to the end of themselves so that when the promise is fulfilled, there is no mistaking who did it. Is it possible that the reason that God waits, the reason that God delays fulfilling His promises to us is because He's doing the exact same thing? He's bringing us to the end of ourselves so that when His promises are fulfilled in His wisdom, in His timing, there is no chance that I will look to myself and say, by my wisdom and my power, I have achieved this. Rather, I will say, there was no chance of this happening for me, but God did it. Is anything too difficult for Him? The word that's used there in in Genesis 18, is anything too difficult for the Lord, is a word that elsewhere in the Old Testament is oftentimes translated as wonderful. So the idea is, is anything too wonderful or delightful or unbelievable or difficult for the Lord to do? This tracks through the rest of Scripture. One of the most notable places where this happens is in Exodus 15. You don't need to turn there. But after the Lord has delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, after He has miraculously saved them from the Egyptian army by parting the sea and enabling them to walk across on dry ground, they get to the other side, and in Exodus 15, they take up a song, and they sing. And in the song, they sing in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God loves to make us wait, not because He loves to make us miserable, but because He loves for us to see that nothing is too difficult for Him. He loves for us to wait so that when we see that nothing is too difficult for Him, we have a new song put in our mouth. We sing with joy and gratitude over what it is that God has done for us out of His sheer goodness and mercy and grace. That's what God said. He said, I will do this. He did it. He said, He promised, I will do what is physically impossible, and He did it. He said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And He shows that no, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And so as a result, from what He said, look at what He made. Sarah says, going back to Genesis 21... 
God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Obviously, this is a play. A little little twist, dramatic twist, Shakespearean even. Abraham laughs in chapter 17 at the thought of Sarah conceiving and giving birth. Sarah herself laughs in chapter 18 at the thought of conceiving and giving birth. Who's laughing now? Well, Sarah is. But is she laughing the laughter of unbelief? Or is she laughing the laughter of joy? And then, of course, don't miss, the name Isaac itself is built on that laughter root. Isaac, he laughs. So they're going to go through the rest of their sunset years, going from empty nesters to now in reverse, nesting. God has reversed all of that. Every time they address their son, they're going to be reminded of the fact that they are living a miracle. Because Sarah's going to call out in the morning. He laughs. It's time for breakfast. He laughs. Time to do your chores. He laughs. You better listen to me when I'm talking to you. Right? Whatever it is. But you see, you see what happens? The naming of the Son, the Son will become the embodiment of the promise that God made to His people. The name itself is going to remind them of the fact that God's promises are so certain and secure that even when we find them laughable, He turns our laughter of unbelief into laughter of joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones from Zion, after we had been leveled and destroyed and left for dead in a distant foreign land, when the Lord brought back the captive ones from Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. They say among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. One of the things that we grapple with, that we wrestle with, that is difficult in the Christian life, is the waiting on promises that seem so far out of reach. But God has demonstrated over and over again that whether the wait is 25 years or 400 years or 1,000 years, God remains true to His Word. There is coming a day when every single promise that God has made to us will be given in full. We will no longer weep. We will no longer have sorrow. We will no longer have pain. We will laugh. And we will sing. And we will say, God has done great things for us.
But it's not just Sarah that will laugh. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Not at me. Right? There's probably a lot of that in the 25 years of barrenness. Say what now? God promised you what? A child? <laughs> okay. Good luck with that. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. So Abraham and Sarah are, at the end of the day, hanging out by the tent door. Isaac's out playing. Well, let's fast forward, what, five years? So Abraham is 105 and Sarah is 95. Isaac is doing what kids normally do at five years old, playing with some toys or something. Visitors come by. And they sit and they talk with Abraham and Sarah. And they notice that there's an unattended child, a stone's throw away, that has not been claimed by any parent moving back and forth. And so they ask the natural question, hey, do you know whose kid this is? Oh, that, yeah, that's our, that's our kid. Adopted, huh? No, no. No, that's, that's our kid. He came from her. And they laugh, thinking it's a joke, until they begin to tell the story. This is what God promised. This is what God said. And then they laugh with Abraham and Sarah and say, is anything too difficult for your God? God gives us his presence. He gives us the fulfillment of his word so that as we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, we have an opportunity for our joy to be expressed, shared, articulated with those around us so that they also can laugh with us. And especially if they come to know Christ. We are sorrowful, but we are always rejoicing. We are sorrowful because we bear up under the weights and the burdens of this life as we wait for the glory that is to come, the glory that God has promised to us. And yet, because we see that God is faithful to us in every way, that what God has said and spoken, He will certainly do, we rejoice in anticipation of the fulfillment of every good promise that God has spoken to us. In the certainty of the fulfillment of those promises, we have on the life of Jesus Christ Himself. Turn with me to Romans 4 until the day of Christ Jesus. Help us now to partake of the life-giving power of Jesus Christ in faith as we rejoice in the fulfillment of the age to come. Amen. Men, if you'll come forward to help distribute the elements... As our men begin to make their way back up the aisle, you'll get a, a self-contained little packet.
has two layers to it. The very first one you peel back and you get access to the wafer. The second one you would peel back and you would get access to the cup. As the men make their way up the aisle and distribute this, please don't partake of the elements just yet until we're brought back together to partake of the elements together. Men, you can go ahead and begin to make your way up the aisles.
in Luke chapter 22, as Luke's giving his account of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus makes this interesting statement to his disciples as they're gathered together. In Luke 22, uh, verses 14 through 16, we read, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he proceeds to give them the cup and give them the bread. Here's here's the connection that I want to make. In the same way that the fulfillment of the birth of Isaac was a down payment or was a sign that God would make good on all the rest of the gifts. Abraham has one descendant, but that one descendant is evidence of the fact that more descendants will come. In the same way, Jesus says there's coming a time when we will enter into the kingdom and we will feast together. He will be with us. We will be in his presence, in the presence of the resurrected Christ. What we do right now, taking this small little wafer and this small little cup, is a taste that is to remind us that because Christ has finished his work, because we have the promise of acceptance with God through the death and resurrection of Christ, we know that this small provision is a reminder of a greater provision to come. We feed by faith on the person and the power of Jesus Christ, resting confidently in the fact that all of the glorious promises that He has made to us will one day be given to us in full. And then we will not be limited to a small wafer and a little taste. We will feast. And we'll do it with joy and laughter and singing. So if you would take the wafer. And remember that the covenant that secures all of the promises of God. Was made on the back, on the body of Jesus Christ. He was broken so that we could be made whole. Take and eat. Now, if you'll take the cup. And remember that Jesus himself said that his blood was the blood of the new covenant. Our security was written in his blood. The blood of God in the flesh holds us and keeps us fast. Take and drink in assurance of his promises. And now, Father, we ask that by faith you would enable us to move out from here, from this time of reflection and meditation, of encouragement, that you would help us to live in the promises that you have made to us 
in the fullness of Christ as it's been given to us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the joy that is ours in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. To close the service, uh, Andy is going to uh, close us out with, uh, with one more song. Uh, Terry Hathaway, one of our elders, will be at the door uh, to uh, wish you a happy Easter as you make your way out. If there's anyone here today who has any questions or anything that you want to talk about, particularly about the things that we have sung about, the things that we have talked about from the pages of Scripture, I'm going to remain down here near the front. I'm not running out anywhere. You don't have to worry about holding up a line as people are making their way out the door. You can ask any questions. We'll talk as long as is necessary, especially if you want to know for certain that the hope of eternal life can be given to you. But questions or talk or conversation about anything, I'll be down here at the front. Andy, you go ahead and close us out. stand to your feet as we continue to praise that he is risen crown him with many crowns a lamb upon his throne hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own awake my soul Sound great, let's keep it up. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphs.